ESPN. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. Uh, here with Tommy Binion, as usual. How's it going, Tommy? Hey, Emily. Great to be here. Great to be back on Mass Ave. It's been a tough week in Washington. Yeah. Um, our our leaders uh, came under attack. Um, Whip Scalise and um, and Matt Micah and Zach Barth uh, and Officer Crystal Griner were um, were shot. Um, by a madman on Wednesday morning. Um, many of us heard that news in our in our commute to work, and so uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to the victims, their family, um, everybody that was a victim of this attack. Uh, really has a a, a, a new um, a new part of their of their history, and uh, it certainly it, it demonstrates. Um, the, the real sacrifice that is the public service that our, our political leaders make. Yeah, and I think it hits a little bit closer to home here in D.C. too, just knowing how much we love our softball teams during the summer and baseball is, is always a big thing. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a heavy week last week. But uh, we responded in, in true American fashion, in my view. I don't know if anybody uh, out there listening caught the baseball game. Uh, it was broadcast on C-SPAN, but most of the major networks cut in throughout the evening. Huge crowd out there for the congressional baseball game. Uh, raucous applause when um, the, the PA system there at Nats Park, Nats Stadium, um, mentioned uh, Whip Scalise and Matt Micah. And, of course, Zach Barth was there mm-hmm. on the field. Uh, you know, just one of those things that makes you uh, makes you feel proud to be an American. That's that's the way we respond to tragedies like that. Yeah, it was a great game. So uh, the agenda moves on in Washington. I, I think that's how uh, that, that's how to phrase it here. Although it's it's rather stalled. Uh, we woke up this morning to a headline that August recess may be canceled. Oh man, do you think it'll happen? There's some chance. I think there's yeah. some chance that August recess will be hap- will be canceled, and that's a big deal here in Washington. Rest assured, that's uh, that's got all the staffers antsy this morning. Well, and you can probably tell me a little bit more, but isn't this a threat that is sometimes made when they're trying to get business done at the end of summer, or how often uh, is this used as... See, Emily's seeing the chess moves. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is a threat or not. See, if it were the leaders making, uh, making these waves, it would be a threat, but... Um, it's the rank and file. It's the um, it's the House Freedom Caucus. Okay. Um, Senator Perdue, a handful of other Republican senators have put quotes out there about it. it uh, so if it were the leadership, sure, I'd, I'd say it was a threat. But yeah. it's the rank and file. And, um, you know, keep in mind, the Senate, uh, they haven't voted on Obamacare yet. They haven't voted on tax reform. They haven't done anything. And the House has at least voted on Obamacare. Uh, per the Constitution, um, the one body, one chamber can't recess for more than three days without the express uh, consent of the other. So, of course, this isn't a, a singular decision for Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to make. So it really does look like the members are willing to uh, stick it out to get to get work done. I don't know. A handful. Yeah. We'll see. A we'll handful. See, uh, a handful. If rhetoric becomes reality. But we got a great show today. Yeah. Uh, we're going to bring you David Azarad, who's... Um, uh, the director of the Center for Principles and Politics here at Heritage. Correct. Yeah, he he kind of looks at a lot of the overall uh, themes in the political uh, landscape. I guess you could say um, he really focuses a lot on the conservative movement, um, specifically right now, kind of what Trump means for the conservative movement. 
Well, as always, we do our best here on Mass Ave to bring you the most interesting research being done at Heritage and really draw out uh, what would be good for you listeners to, to be thinking about. David spends a lot of time thinking about the founding, mm-hmm. thinking about the principles behind um, behind our republic. But uh, recently he's been thinking about Trump and, and, and what that means, what, what the basis for his ideology might be and, and how that connects to conservatism. So that's a little bit later. We'll look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, um, why don't you pull up iTunes and go ahead and press that subscribe button for us? Uh, we'd love for you to do that. It'll Your phone will then automatically let you know when we have another episode. Uh, and, and we'll look forward to continuing to bring you uh, Mass Ave here from Heritage. Uh, real quick before we get to David, if you like hearing about the issues that Washington is not discussing, check out Underreported, which is a brand new video series from The Daily Signal. Uh, we have expert reporters like Genevieve Wood and Kelsey Harkness. They're taking a look at topics that the mainstream media forgot to mention and keep you informed about the issues impacting your day-to-day life. So if you want to check that out, go to dailysignal.com to listen in. As promised, we have Dr. David Azarad in the studio on Mass Ave to talk a little bit uh, with us about what he's been working on these past few months as President Trump has taken office. Uh, David, uh, Trump represents a seismic shift in our politics. Does he also represent a, a, a seismic shift in, uh, in our conservative principles? Uh, well, look, that's the question. Uh, the question right now, and has been for a while, is, is Trump and Trumpism a hostile takeover of the Republican Party to which conservatives have laid claim since the Reagan era? Uh, or is it an allied political force that is different than conservatism, although has some similarities and perhaps can be refined, managed and absorbed into conservatism. Uh, my view is that Trumpism is distinct from conservatism, uh, but I think that there are problems in conservatism that Trumpism could address. But then conversely, I think that I think that there are problems in uh, Trumpism that conservatism could remedy. So I think what would be best for the right would be uh, a fusion of the two, but not, you know, just pushing them together, gluing them together in an incongruous way, but rather refining each one and forming, uh, I think, a more compelling political movement than either one is individually today. So can you give us a little bit of a explanation of what Trumpism actually is? Look, that's the million dollar question. Uh, I think that the dominant view amongst intellectuals on the right is that there is no such thing as Trumpism. Uh, There's just Trump the man whose mind is filled with an incoherent mishmash of barely digested ideas, half-baked conspiracy theories, and whatever impulsive things pop into his mind. Uh, The view on the left seems to be that, of course, there is such a thing as Trumpism, and it's white nationalism. I think both are incorrect. Um, I think there is a coherent set of ideas that constitute the Trumpist worldview, and I think it is not white nationalism. I would define it as having three core pillars. The first one is the America first nationalism. And this is the, I think, rather uncontroversial idea that the interest, security, well-being and values of Americans should be the leading consideration that informs our dealing with other nations, particularly in the realms of trade, immigration, and foreign policy. So America first is a bit of a misnomer. What it really is, is Americans first, and in particular, working class Americans. The second pillar of Trumpism is that it's populist. So it basically says that the fundamental, the way to look at our politics is not via a left-right ideological divide, but more by a top-down sociological divide. 
It says that the bad guys is not the government the way conservatives claim, it's the elites. And that the good people are the American people. So it's a rejection of identity politics uh, and kind of Sanderism by saying we're not divided by race, ethnicity, religion, sex, sexual orientation, nor are we divided by class in terms of how much money you make. We're divided by class in terms of your worldview and that there are elites that are fairly contemptuous of the American people. And then there's the rest of the, the country. And then I think the third pillar of Trumpism, which springs from the first two, is that it's a temperament that is aggressive, bold, uh, and it makes perfect sense. If you think that the world is comprised of clashing nations and that the country is fundamentally divided and that we have some form of a class war, then you're going to have a rather uh, bold and aggressive and combative response to this. So broadly speaking, at the macro level, I think that that's what Trumpism is. Well, and we certainly saw those pillars of Trumpism come out during the campaign. You said that uh, Trumpism and conservatism nicely complement each other. I think that's true. I think that's really interesting. Clearly, President Trump is on to a powerful political notion that uh, that taps into something within our body politic uh, that got him elected. And uh, just last week, his approval numbers uh, rose above 50 percent. What do you make of, of um, the American electorate's response to him so far? I just want to correct one thing you said, Tommy. I didn't say that they nicely complement one another because it, there are tensions between the two. Uh, that's why I think the term fusionism, I emphasize that changes would be required of each one. What I'm saying is I don't think they're fundamentally incompatible and irreconcilable. In terms of your point, I think that the great lesson here is Trumpism is not big on ideas. Uh, its core emphasis is the interest and well-being of the American people. And um, with apologies to uh, our conservative brethren, and I'm a conservative, is I think we sometimes forget that. I think that conservatives have become so enamored with ideas with the idea that ideas have consequences, to quote Richard Weaver's famous book, that they seem to have forgotten the most elementary truth of politics, namely that politics is about interest. It's a clash of interests. This is something that the left understands very well. It's something that the founders understood. If you reread Federalist 10, James Madison says that the principal task of legislation is governing and regulating the competing interests in society. Conservatives seem to have forgotten that. Uh, we talk about ideas a lot. Uh, and when we do talk about a particular segment of the American population, oftentimes, think of Mitt Romney, it tends to be businessmen and entrepreneurs. And there's nothing wrong with these people, but most Americans don't have a startup and are never going to launch a business. And Trump is, uh, yeah, a bit thin on ideas in certain places, but he gets this fundamentally. And the message, I think, resonates and appeals to people by saying, I will champion your interest. I'm not saying we should abandon ideas. Heck, we'd be out of a job at the Heritage Foundation if there were no, no more ideas in politics. But we need to remind ourselves that when ideas enter the public square, they need to connect themselves to interests. Uh, kind of going back to what you said about the first pillar of Trumpism, which is nationalism, how would you distinguish... Trump's version of nationalism from previous versions? That's a very good question. So this is a term that makes many people uncomfortable, and rightly so. Um, 
because part of the history of the 20th century was uh, blood and soil uh, nationalism that aimed to, well, expand the national territory and purge the nation of minorities deemed to be unpure. So that would be the Nazi model. Uh, I would think of the term nationalism in terms of what is it opposed to? So the blood and soil version tends to be opposed to, again, ethnic minorities that are deemed to be unpure. The anti-colonial version is opposed to, well, colonial overlords that prevent you from having your independence. This is the nationalism of uh, Africa and Asia and South America, the wave of independence we saw in the 50s, 60s and 70s. I think the Trump, the Trumpist form of nationalism is different than these other two. There it's directed against other nations on the world stage that are trying to take advantage of America. So the bad guys there are pretty much everyone else that are taking advantage of us through bad trade deals in particular. But it's also the elites at home who are shortchanging and screwing over the American people by sacrificing their interests and espousing a globalist transnationalist perspective. Um, in this regard, I think it's a different form of nationalism and, and one that uh, shouldn't make us as uncomfortable given the 20th century echoes one hears in the term. David, uh, you know, these ideas that we've been speaking about or, or, or these concepts, these pillars of Trumpism were certainly evident in the campaign. They were certainly evident um, in his inauguration address. Uh, I, I can vividly remember America first, America first, America first. From this day forward. Yeah. Um, and that was great. And it was inspiring. And, and we all loved it. Um the focus has now shifted to this agenda that largely comes from Congress. It comes, you know, it's repeal Obamacare, it's tax reform. In our system of government, you know, are, are we going to see Trump lead on some of these, uh, some of these things, or, or, or are we doomed to, to sort of get mired in the uh, procedural morass that is the United States Congress? Well, what we've been seeing now is the transition for Trump uh, from campaigning uh, to governing. Um, and it, it's, I mean, look, he's the first president we've ever had in the nation's history that had never been elected to office, nor uh, served in the military as a general, say someone like Eisenhower. So in a sense, he was not uh, prepared fully for the task of governing. And it, it isn't, uh, you kind of learn uh, on the job. Um, the president does have a role to play uh, even though we have separation of powers in setting an agenda for Congress and giving them some direction. And I think it's particularly needed now because, uh, I mean, you'll know this better than me because the Hill is, is your backyard, that many of these members of Congress have never been uh, in power. They've only functioned as the opposition party. They have no experience governing. Uh, and I think a, a bit more guidance from the White House uh, could be useful in this regard. We'll certainly uh, hope that some of these pillars uh, become um, topics for public debate. Debate, David, for a, for a French Canadian who, uh, who who thinks about our past and our founding all day long, you sure have nailed uh, the present day politics, which I think the mainstream media utterly missed during the campaign. Uh, you love it. Our, our politics were turned on its head, and. Uh, 
Uh, instead, we, we got insistence that uh, the talking heads knew all about what was happening until they didn't. So this campaign was interesting. Uh, you've put a, a, a very uh, learned spin on it. We appreciate that. Uh, any last thoughts for us? Yeah. Uh, here's the difficulty in, in talking and thinking about Trumpism is that it's tied up with Donald Trump, who's a very controversial figure who inspires very strong emotions in people. Uh, and I think it would be a mistake to wholly dismiss the entirety of the phenomenon and to not see that whatever it is you think about Donald Trump, the man, his character, his temperament, his tweets, uh, I think he is onto something at the, at the at the big picture, at what I'm the level of what I'm calling Trumpism, and that there is a lesson there for conservatives and for liberals for that matter, but uh, they're less likely to learn it given the visceral opposition they have to Trump the man. I think it would be a big mistake if conservatives didn't think that there was something there for us to learn. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, David. That was a very insightful look into Trumpism and our conservative principles. And we'll be right back with Mass Ave. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud. Welcome to Mass Ave. Uh, we have a special guest host here with us today, Daniel Davis. He edits commentary for the Daily Signal. Um, we also have Mike Gonzalez here with us. He is um, here to give us a little bit of insight. We have the U.S. policy towards Cuba is about to change as Trump, along with Marco Rubio, is going to uh, announce some changes in Florida tomorrow. Um, Mike, can you give us a little bit of insight into what to expect? Well, you never really know until the last minute, but what I hear is that it's going to be narrowly targeted, and rightly so, at transferring funds to uh, military-owned companies in Cuba. <clears throat> that is, it's going to try to prevent the transfer uh, of convertible currency by U.S. persons to the, the, the apparatus of state, the, 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 the machine of repression uh, that is the Cuban military. So that is a very good thing, very welcome. Could, uh, just going back a, a year, <laughs> President Obama obviously made some pretty um, big changes in policy toward Cuba. Could you talk about what some of those changes were and, and, and what effects they had both in our relationship to Cuba and for the Cuban people? <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, President Obama, and this is why... Uh, many people, including me, think that this was more of a vanity project than a, a real policy uh, aimed at improving uh, the freedom and democracy of the Cuban people, giving the Cuban people freedom and democracy, which of which they have none at the moment. <clears throat> he asked for nothing uh, of, the, of the military dictators in Cuba and, of course, got nothing in return. If you ask for nothing, you get nothing. So... Um, what what happened was that he said, well, you're going to have the privilege of trading with us. You're going to have the privilege of selling, you know, your your rum and your cigar. There's not much that they produce anymore because communism after 60 years has completely destroyed what used to be a very th thriving economy. But he said, you're going to be able to sell things. You're going to be able to <clears throat> buy our things and get our convertible currency. Uh, so what happened was that as a result of that, the military, the Cuban, the Castro family believed, and rightly so, that it had carte blanche, that it could do whatever it wanted. 
so so um, arbitrary arrests, politically motivated arbitrary arrests, rose very rapidly until last year, 2016. They hit a record of almost 10,000. Uh, so uh, that 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 is that's what happens when you just say to the to a military dictatorship, you have to you have to meet no obligations. You can just enrich yourselves further. Uh, they turn to the dissidents and say, "Nobody has your back. We're going to be able to beat uh, you know what out of you now." So, uh, what kind of engagement <laughs> would free the Cuban people <laughs> from this kind of? Um, Communism. Well, it is communism. Yeah. I mean, it's communism that has been applied there since 1959, New Year's Eve, 1958 to 59. <clears throat> and communism, by the way, has a spectacular record of failing miserably everywhere it has been tried. It even failed in Germany, the most industrious, productive people on earth, uh, you know, f- uh, experienced great hardship when communism was applied on a, on the part of uh, Germany that was East Germany. So yes, it has failed spectacularly in the Caribbean you know, on an island that was very uh, that was very successful. One so successful that it used to attract European immigrants, especially including my grandparents. Um, the uh, the type of change that would help the Cuban people is to 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 uh, make sure they get information. To, to uh, make it so that we can beam to them real truth, information, news, so they're aware of what's happening outside their borders uh, so that the communist government no longer has a monopoly on information and news. And uh, that can be done. We can do our best to make sure that the Cuban people are independent actors um, as much as possible. Well, is there, I know in a lot of countries we have radio broadcasts that reach people behind, uh, you know, the borders that we can't access. Do we have anything <laughs> similar, like being so close, you know, to Florida? Uh, well, it's jammed. It's okay. jammed. Uh, radio Marti is jammed. Uh, although Radio Marti actually does get through, TV Marti is jammed. But there are many things you can do. We can raise it uh, to a level uh, through by a balloon, for example. So that it, be, it makes it very hard for the military dictatorship to jam this information. We could try what we what has been tried in the past. Try to get in um, the memory sticks there. Try to send them. Um, you know, try to find any way to get in computer, laptops, the internet. Demand that they give their people the internet. Cuba has one of the lowest rates of internet access anywhere in the world. Um, there, you know, countries. Uh, that, that you wouldn't think, you know, in Africa and Asia that have much greater access to the internet that Cubans do. Cubans have no, very little Wi-Fi, no internet connection, and that's done for a reason. It's done because to, to maintain the Cuban people, uh, to, to make sure they don't, they don't know the truth of what's happening in the world and what's happening in their own country. Yeah. Well, well, well we've had a, an embargo prior to Obama's actions for, for 56 years, correct? <laughs> mm-hmm. Embargo with Cuba. Um, what what were there any real uh, substantive changes that that were working about mm-hmm. in the Cuban uh, regime? Was the regime weakening until Obama made these changes? Because the New York Times here um, is quoted as saying, uh, "quote The embargo's harshness has never correlated with improvements in human mm-hmm. rights." Um, but some some are also arguing that 
it, it was getting pretty close that the regime was weakening. Uh, if we just keep the embargo going, do you think the regime will eventually fall? Well, first of all, one takeaway from this is that you should never believe anything you read about the Cuba in the New York Times. <laughs> um, it began in the 1950s with Herbert Matthews, the New York Times correspondent in yeah. Cuba, who uh, went to Havana, went to, sorry, went to the countryside, interviewed Castro, came back and told us nothing to worry about. He's not a communist. He just wants to bring democracy to Cuba. So the New York Times has a, a consistent record of lying and misrepresenting the truth about Cuba mm. since the 1950s. Um, the embargo succeeded at uh, limiting the, uh, the, uh, the ability of the Castro regime to export its revolution to Latin America. So right off the bat, uh, Castro comes in in the early 60s, begins to export uh, communism to Argentina, to Chile, to Brazil, to Venezuela, uh, and, and, and terrorist activities. And, and what happens is all these countries, one after the other, reacted with military uh, clampdowns and dictatorships, which lasted about 10 years, uh, 10 to 15 years in all these countries. Um, the, but the embargo was able to limit his ability to export revolution to Latin America and Africa. Um, it, but let's be serious, an embargo by the United States only is not going to succeed at doing anything because Mexico, Europe, everybody else is trading with Cuba. In order for an embargo to succeed, you'd have to have a replicate of the very successful um, world condemnation and embargo of South Africa in the early 90s, uh, which did succeed. Uh, the, the apartheid regime was, was, could not, was not able to withstand the pressure of a united world against it and had to give all of its people freedom and democracy. And I think if we have a similar, uh, a similar experience with Cuba, and, uh, and why not? Why shouldn't we? Why should the world stand by and allow one family to order the lives of 11 million people for 60 years? It's, it is an outrage. You know, these are adults who should be able to make their own decisions in, 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 in their lives. Politically and economically, they should be able to own property. They should be able to sell property. They should be able to vote. They should be able to elect their own leaders. They should be able to associate uh, freely. They should be able to speak their minds. They should be able to practice their religion. Uh, all these things that are not allowed in Cuba. So the world really should, re to, 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 should react in anger and outrage and demand that the Castro government uh, allow people to have the freedoms that they were, that, 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 that the rights that they, they, they're born with, that are taken away at birth by the Castro government. Uh, if, if the world acted in concert this way, the Castro government could not last. Hmm. So uh, I guess final question, what kind of message do you think this sends by you know, <clears throat> Trump rolling back some of the, the changes <clears throat> Obama made? I think that it sends, and, and again, I don't think we should see it as a... Um, as a reaction to Obama. Mm -hmm. This is not a reactive policy. This is a proactive policy. The mm -hmm. way I have heard, be, have heard it explained to me, narrowly tailored to punish the, Cuba, the Cubans, the, 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 the bloodstained hands of the Cuban military and the Castro family, which is right. Castro will now have a choice. He can either allow Cubans to, to have property rights and be able to engage uh, with outsiders. And, you know, Obama said in his speech, I believe it was in 2015, 
that what he wanted to have was people-to-people contract, uh, contacts to allow the Cuban people to, to be able to be independent of the Cuban government. Well, this these narrowly targeted measures, if, if what is announced is what I have heard, could do just that, or because the Castro, the, 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 the military dictatorship could could react by saying, "Well, okay, if uh, foreigners cannot deal with the military, we're going to allow the Cuban people uh, to really true economic freedom, and in which case there won't be a problem. In which case there will be trade with Cuba, there will be interactions with Cuba, there will be people to people contract uh, contacts. So it, Trump may actually fulfill." Uh, the stated purposes of the Obama policies, which the 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 way the Obama policies were implemented, so so failed to 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 bring to bring to 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 to, to life. Well, Mike, thanks so much. This is a an insightful discussion, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. And that's it for Mass Ave. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for listening in. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast. And remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill.